Why are you doing that? Making sure nobody's follow us. That would be inconceivable. We can all relax. It's almost over. Not sure nobody's follow us. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. He's climbing the rope. And he's getting on us. Inconceivable. You got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable! Rebellion dogs are every step at first, so says Bill Wilson in the 12 and 12. We'll be looking more at what he has to say from that text as we discuss the favorite arguments against having humanist, atheist, freethinkers groups in Alcoholics Anonymous. We'll look at AA's bylaws and see if groups are or are not allowed to interpret, amend, or in any way rewrite AA's 12 steps for their own purposes, and if they do so, can they still call themselves an AA group? We'll be looking at the favorite tradition-breaking accusations that are so cliché in AA, atheist bashing, that we hear these same arguments from Indianapolis to Toronto, from the West Coast and back to Ohio. We'll look at the intended meaning of rights, duties, and warranties in AA's service manual so we can once and for all <laughs> be all on the same page about who is in and who is out. We'll be able to identify by the end of this show who has AA stewardship right and who is suffering from interpretations or traditions that do not mean what you think it means. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. I'm glad you're here. So, words are important here. Let's make sure we agree on what they mean before either of us passes judgment on another. At the time of recording, AA is gearing up for the 65th General Service Conference. And the discussion of diversity and inclusion is going on around North America. There's a new Angus Reid report on faith-based versus secular views of the world today in Canada. You know, nearly 30% of Canadians don't believe in a supreme being. Will 3 out of 10 alcoholics in Canada have to have a conversion experience to find meaning and worth from AA? And do the 70% of Canadians that do believe want to make room for these non-believers, or are atheists seen as a threat? The survey actually provides answers to these questions. It's the same in the U.S. and Europe, too. The Pew Research Group has some new data out showing that while belief in a world and universe governed by a supernatural personal god isn't going out of style, a natural scientific worldview holds plenty of awe, mystery, and hope for non-believers who do not warm up to gods in the sky or floating between the cells of all sentient beings. The Pew Research Report projects how different our landscape of worldviews will look in the USA and around the world. 
In recent shows, we've talked about the increase in visible minorities. Non-whites make up 40% of the population today and will cross over the 50-50 threshold by 2040. America, the Muslim, Christian, and secular nation. How is that going to look? How is AA going to be affected? I just saw a BBC documentary hosted by an Anglican vicar who spent a year traveling the world to try different cults, rituals, and traditions. It's called Around the World in 80 Faiths. On that theme, imagine an AA devoted to maintaining our spiritual, not religious, credibility rotating through 80 meeting-closing prayers to accommodate the different theologies as we understand them. Would this more fairly represent the plight of the still-suffering alcoholic where AA meetings are held today? Imagine a prayer a week and not getting back to the Lord's Prayer for a year and a half. How comfortable would you be coming to a meeting for the first time, holding hands, and trying to follow along with the words to a Tibetan Buddhist aphorism, smoking a cigar with Saint Death, celebrating a colorful Durja Puja festival, walking on coals in a Rajasthan ceremony, chanting a Sikh worship, exploring Jainism, being led in a South American UFO worship, or praying to the Bolivian god of the underworld, eating some tree bark, as the Botswana San Bushmen do, singing in Rastafarian style, talking in tongues, joining in an aboriginal drum circle, or closing the meeting in the unusual fashion of the Diwali village of India, where they engage once a year in that dung-slinging festival. Wouldn't all that make us truly spiritual, not religious? Even here in North America, some monotheists view collective out loud praying as arrogant, blasphemous, a spectacle of the ego, not faith at all. Maybe quiet time could better accommodate all people of both faith-based and reason-based fundamental worldviews. Otherwise, let's decorate our meetings with prayer flags, drums, and burning coals, and set aside all of our collective contempt prior to investigation as we explore all of these different closing rituals. That's just me exercising my imagination. Now let's get down to earth with some issues about the rights of individuals, groups, and AA as a whole, and what causes some conflict and confusion right now. Someone told me about an argument, a loud argument at Toronto Intergroup, as three men were answering the phones. It had to do with the question of agnostic, atheist, or alternative 12 steps and their legitimacy in AA. Is reading a variation of the 12 steps grounds for expulsion from AA and the group directory? The discussion was heated between two of the men. The third, it turns out, got so curious that after their shift, they came to check out Beyond Belief Agnostic and Free Thinkers group in Toronto later that night. The name of the men are not important. Both have been successful in AA for decades. Both men love AA and hope that our future is long and meaningful. Both have a gut feeling about what is good for and what is bad for AA as a whole. One, 
the anti-secular member asked the pro-AA inclusivity member if he had read the service manual lately and then chastised him for not being a worthy deacon. What's worse than an old-timer who says he loves AA but hasn't read the service manual? The literalist snapped. Well, hey, Mr. Literalist, over here, if you're interested, I can actually answer that question. What's worse than a deacon who hasn't read the AA service manual? I suggest that what's worse is someone who has read it and doesn't understand it. Misinformation is worse than no information at all. I will make this statement right up front. Everything in the service manual points to AA groups being welcome to conduct their affairs and hold themselves out to the public as they see fit. When we understand and agree upon what certain phrases mean, we will understand if and when there might be any limits to group liberty, warranties, rights, negative and positive rights, duty to accommodate. These are the terms that understanding or misunderstanding centers on. Yes, groups are asked to consider the overall needs of AA or other groups. Once the group has done so and made a decision, they ought to be considered in good standing with AA as a whole. AA as a whole might not agree with them, but according to AA culture, each group has rights, even the right to be wrong. The service manual, specifically the bylaws for the General Service Board, talk about a duty held by the board to protect the 12 steps from alterations and the traditions. Does that mean enforcing uniformity upon the groups, or does it mean something else? Good question. Let's have a look. Bylaws of the General Service Board are from Appendix E of the AA Service Manual combined with the 12 Concepts of World Service. Bernard B. Smith authored the bylaws as one of many acts of his love and service. He's a non-alcoholic trustee, or was, an international lawyer, and he was chair of the board of the General Service Conference from January 1951 to April 1956. Burns Smith was a good friend to AA, and he's the principal architect of our General Service Conference. As Appendix E points out, AA's General Service Board has but one purpose, that of serving the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. In keeping with the spirit of the manual and the 12 concepts that guide AA's service structure and the traditions that guide members and our groups, the bylaws do not intend to offer the board any governance or authority over AA members and our groups. That is clearly stated throughout the manual. The board's duty, as stated in the bylaws, is to maintain service to those who should be seeking, through Alcoholics Anonymous, the means for arresting the disease of alcoholism through the application, in our lives, in whole or in part, of the 12 steps which constitute the recovery program upon which the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is founded. I'm quoting from the manual. Members have a right to accept, reject, or apply to their own lives in whole or in part, one step 
the Twelve Steps, an Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, One Hundred Steps. The Twelve Steps are suggestions, and by no means are they a qualification for membership among us. They are for our lives as we see fit. They are not to be imposed upon others, nor are they sacred and or beyond individual interpretation and imaginative application. Vive la les différences. The board is, in essence, the custodian of the Twelve Steps and Traditions. We entrust the board not to govern us as members and groups, but to conduct our world service affairs as Concept 7 states. The conference charter is not a legal document. It relies upon traditions and the AA purse for final effectiveness. Neither the board nor the conference become the seat of perilous wealth or power, that it places none of its members in a position of unqualified authority over others. 1941, that was the first woman's group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It marks the beginning of acceptable practices for a group to cater to a subcategory of alcoholic member and or newcomer. LGBTQ, Young peoples, atheist agnostics, career-specific groups, they've all followed. There's groups for lawyers and for the airline industry. All of these groups are and have been unpopular with some members. So if you don't like them, don't go. Problem solved. Appendix E, Bylaws of the General Service Board. This is page S111, right between the 12 steps and the 12 traditions reads as follows, and I quote, The General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous, herein referred to as either General Service Board or the Board, claims no proprietary right to the recovery program for these 12 steps, as all spiritual truths, may now be regarded as available to all mankind. However, because these 12 steps have proven to constitute an effective spiritual basis for life which, if followed, arrests the disease of alcoholism, the General Service Board asserts the negative right of preventing, so far as it may be within its power so to do, any modification, alteration, or extension of these 12 steps, except at the instance of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, in keeping with the charter of the General Service Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous, as the same may from time to time be amended, herein referred to as the charter. So there is the great turgid statement. Let's look at what this means and doesn't mean. Clearing up any confusion that might arise from this language, working backwards, Neither the board throughout the year nor the conference at its annual meeting or delegates, being area delegates, trustees, or designated AA employees, these people gathered together can't alter or modify the steps or traditions on our behalf. For example, a motion would not be entertained to add social media to the 11th tradition about anonymity by a member of the conference. It won't be voted on and announced that now we've revised our traditions. Read these ones, not those ones. No one could change God as we understand him to 
God of our personal understanding or simply higher power wherever God was put. Just because our trusted servants thought we should make AA more hip. They can change a pamphlet or release a whole new edition of the big book through this due process, but they can't change the steps of AA except if the members, 75% of the members, voted to do so. That's 75% vote. So they survey all the members, 75% of those who respond say yes. That would constitute the instance of the fellowship of AA saying, go ahead and change them. So while the traditions and steps are suggestions and not rules, they do hold a special category that I dare say borders on sacred as they are held in trust and protected on behalf of the members by the board. Now the fireworks. Just before the statement about the membership can change or alter the steps or traditions, we read that the General Service Board asserts the negative right of preventing, so far as it may be within its power so to do, any modification, alteration, or extension of these 12 steps. This, I suggest, is what some literalist AA stewards jump on to point at the sacredness of the 12 steps. They see no modification, alteration, or extension of these steps, and they believe they have proven that agnostic groups, at least those who read a secular interpretation of the steps, have broken a vow. They have breached a code and forfeited their right to being treated as rights-bearing equals among other groups. See, they say with righteous indignation, you can't change the steps and call yourself AA. Go start your own fellowship if you like, but you're no longer welcome here. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable! That's the damage that a lack of understanding of words can do. That's the bending of the truth that evildoers throughout history have exercised to justify domination or discrimination over another many times in the name of God. First of all, if one is to interpret this passage about the board having a right to prevent as intergroups edict to expel non-conforming groups from AA's fold, let's ask a bigger question. Is this action of expulsion consistent with the rest of the manual and or the warranties, the guarantees, that protect the members and the groups from the conference and service structure itself? Secondly, to quote Indigo Montoya, a character from Rob Reiner's film The Princess Bride, you keep using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Let's look at words. Let's look at three things. What is meant by a negative right of preventing? What is meant by so far as it may be within its power to do? What is the context of the bylaws as part of the service manual as a whole? Rights are moral concepts that societies, just like AA, use to help us get along. There is a big difference between our General Service Board claiming a negative right versus laying claim to a positive right. 
If one doesn't know the difference between these two classes of rights, it would be easy to misinterpret the meaning of our bylaws. Let's listen to Ian Scoble, professor of philosophy at Bridgewater State University, as he differentiates negative rights and positive rights. One reason there's a lot of confusion about rights from both liberals and conservatives is that there are different sorts of rights. Besides the distinction between legal and moral rights, we also need to distinguish the different sorts of claims the assertion of a right makes. Philosophers generally use the expressions negative rights and positive rights to express these distinctions. Now, there's nothing evaluative about these terms. It's not negative in a bad way. These are precise terms that philosophers use to make an important distinction. So let's see if we can explore it. This works whether we're talking about lottery tickets, milk, potato chips, coffee, beef. My right to get these things is not an obligation to get them, and neither is it a warrant to be given them. My right to get these things means that no one ought to stop me from making trades through which I can acquire them. That's a little different from, say, when you get arrested and are informed that you have the right to an attorney. You know how they say it from TV. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. The store is under no obligation to provide me with a stake if I can't afford one. But the folks who arrested me are obliged to provide me with an attorney if I cannot afford one. So these are different kinds of rights. Different kinds of rights. How does that apply to the bylaws, the board, and groups in AA? If the board claims a positive right to prevent modification of the 12 steps, someone or something, presumably groups and members, would have a duty to accommodate and or comply in order to meet the right of the board, the positive right. This would be an autocratic system with authority filtering down from a central power to the levels of service, the areas and districts, and lastly to groups and then members. But that's not how AA works, is it? GSO is like the United Nations of 115 sovereign countries. Every meeting is autonomous. Therefore, GSO does not and cannot exercise any right that would violate the group's right to self-government. Yes, each group is asked to consider other groups or AA as a whole, but when the group has decided what is right for itself, the group's rights can't be infringed upon, even if the group is wrong. What happens to wrong groups? Well, call it divine intervention or natural selection. Either way, there is no need to willfully intervene at any level of AA service. GSO delegates, intergroups, these exist only to serve, never to govern AA groups. Let's let this Bridgewater State University professor explain further. One way to get clear on this distinction is to think about the relationship between rights and duties. If Smith has a right, then Jones has a duty. Understanding what different kinds of duties Jones might have is one way to understand what kinds of rights Smith might have. We'll call negative rights the kind of rights which impose on others a negative duty, a duty not to do anything, a duty of non-interference. If I have a right of this sort, all you have to do to respect that right is refrain from blocking me. Negative rights are sometimes called liberties. Now, we'll call positive rights the kind of rights which impose on others a positive duty, 
a duty to provide or act in a certain way. If I have a right of this sort, you respect it by complying. Positive rights are also sometimes called entitlements. So, my right to a lottery ticket or a stake is a negative right. No one can properly interfere with my efforts to acquire these through trade. Freedom of speech is another example of a negative right. I cannot be arrested for speaking out. The right of criminal suspects to an attorney is a positive right. One will be provided. One interesting feature of negative rights is that they don't conflict, and we can all respect everyone else's liberties all the time. We simply have to refrain from using force to make people do our bidding. If I claimed I had a positive right to a stake, someone would have an obligation to give me one, not as a trade, but as a non-consensual service. That would violate their liberty, making them involuntarily subservient to me. This suggests that if we're free and equal by nature, any positive rights would have to be grounded in consensual arrangements. Unfortunately, for a lot of so-called positive rights, this just isn't the case. So does AA have positive rights grounded in consensual agreement, as he referred to? I believe we do. There are six warranties found in Concept 12. We'll talk later about how these warranties ought to protect every group and every member's positive rights to self-expression and individuality from any punitive action or intimidation. But, as Dr. Scoble says, unfortunately, for a lot of so-called positive rights, this just isn't the case. Bigotry happens for one of two reasons. Ignorance breeds bigotry, and so does hate. Information overcomes ignorance. Those inflicted with hate and fear can't hear information. They are closed, hostile, and divisive. They thrive in the presence of an apathetic or uninformed majority. That's what I see every time a group is harassed by a delegate or an intergroup. Only against the backdrop of ignorance and fear can evil win the day. Only an uninformed, angry, and hasty intergroup could ever betray a group's positive right to be accommodated by the majority, no matter how unpopular or unusual this AA group may seem. The board has a right to prevent modification of the steps under certain circumstances. However, as a right and not a duty, the board is not obligated to exercise their right. If the press misquotes the 12 steps, does the board have a negative right to ask the news outlet to make a correction to properly represent AA's 12 steps? If the news outlet refuses to accommodate this change or correction, would the board have a right or duty to take legal action against the news outlet? When it comes to the media, the public, or our own groups, the biggest question would be what does, so far as it may be within its power so to do, actually mean? Clearly the board would not be within its power so to do if violating any of the AA traditions. How could it overrule a group's decision, Tradition 2, a group's autonomy, Tradition 4, or access to equal services and involvement, Tradition 1, unity. Or going beyond how the board relates to the groups, how could the board aggressively go after a rogue news outlet without engaging in public controversy, Tradition 10. Some of the powers of the board which we see now as very limited, are further dictated by our concepts. 
Concept 7 shows us that the board's mandate is world service affairs. We see in Concept 12 that the board is never to govern our members and groups. The board and the conference are to avoid wealth and power. What is the likelihood that the board or any level of AA service ought to ever adjudicate if a group is harming other groups or AA as a whole when every group and every member has the right to be wrong? This is how context, how this line in the bylaws fits the spirit of the service manual as a whole, speaking to why one party, say GSO or intergroup, can't exercise their rights when doing so would infringe on the rights of another, say the AA group or AA member. Why are groups autonomous? Group rights can't be granted or suspended. They are God-given rights, or inalienable if you prefer. There is no authority that oversees the group other than the decisions made by its members. GSO can ask or suggest that a group do this or that. As a servant, not a form of government, GSO can't expel a group that acts or thinks in a rogue way. The membership, AA's groups and individuals, we're granted guarantees within these warranties found in Concept 12. The pamphlet, The Twelve Concepts, says, These warranties indicate the qualities of prudence and spirituality. These are the permanent bonds that hold the conference fast to the movement it serves. The warranties also express spiritual principles which apply to all other AA entities as well. For the purpose of context, Warranty 6 ensures that members and groups give marching orders to the service structure. Never is the power dynamic reversed, and never is one group's rights ever to curtail another group's rights. AA is not a popularity contest, and groups are neither obligated to comply or concede to the will of others. Warranty 6, the guarantee to us AA members, is that our rights are number one. It makes this statement, that though the conference may act for the service of Alcoholics Anonymous, it shall never perform any act of government. The AA traditions accord the individual member and AA groups extraordinary liberties. In fact, we AAs probably enjoy a greater freedom than any fellowship in the world. We claim this as no virtue. Because we set such a high value on our great liberties and cannot conceive that they will ever need to be limited, we here specially enjoin the General Service Conference to abstain completely from any and all acts of authoritative government which could in any way curtail AA's freedom under God. Any questions? <laughs> AA's freedom that each group and each member enjoys has no authority but God herself. Not so ironically, this includes atheists and agnostic groups. Any act of fear, bigotry, or ignorance in AA deserves our pity. It's quite another thing to follow such a clay-footed leader without checking the facts, or at least checking with your heart. The 65th General Service Conference is thinking about how diversity and inclusivity in AA ought to be.
AA's areas and regions are discussing this. Previously, I kind of ranted a little bit about the Canadian Eastern Regional AA Service Assembly panel on diversity in AA, our heritage of inclusivity. Past delegate of Area 83, Rob W. He had already been designated to put on the diversity and inclusivity panel at Area 83's Area Assembly. So he asked me to be on the panel. He asked three of us. Cesar from the Toronto Spanish-speaking district, Roshni of South Asian Hindu culture, and me, Joe, the accessibility chair for District 10 and member of one of Canada's 20 agnostic atheist AA groups. We were in the main ballroom. Rob expressed his regret to the two other moderators for the two other panels going on at the same time, as it seemed to him that everyone in Area 83 was here in this room. It was a packed house. The panel was well received. All of us were. Rob was able to, with our input, articulate how we're all alcoholics, all AA members first, but each with our right to express ourselves without the need for censorship or hostility from others. Through Q&A, we were able to express that Uniformity is by no means a requirement for unity in AA. Meanwhile, three time zones away, Ashley M. from the Pacific Region AA Service Assembly was talking to her region, and here's an excerpt from her presentation which shows how supportive versus how cruel and condescending AAs can be to each other. From Prasa the Pacific Region AA Service Assembly 2015. Presentation by Ashley M. Hello everyone, my name's Ashley M. I'm an alcoholic. I currently serve as the DCM of District 1, Idaho, Area 18. I've been given this topic. Does our fellowship make agnostics, Buddhists, spiritualists, etc. feel welcome in our recovery meetings? Through a lot of prayer and meditation, I've decided not to give my own personal experience on the topic. Everything you'll hear from me today is coming directly from our members of AA or our AA literature. So, without further ado, here we go. I interviewed individuals from Idaho, Hawaii, Colorado, and Alaska to see if the fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous is welcoming to agnostics, Buddhists, etc. Here's what I found. One member shared the following. Sometimes the best way to answer a question is to put yourself in the exact same position of a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or Jewish person. The member stated that they do not have any direct experience with not feeling welcome in AA because of their spiritual beliefs, but it is easy for them to see how others may feel offended or unable to attend because of our strong Christian beginnings. This member believes we can cast a wider net if we were to get rid of some of the dogma that's in AA. I interviewed another member and she said the following. This is Amy the Atheist story. This is something. Our fellowship does not make anyone feel anything. We are responsible for our own feelings. There are Numerous ways, however, in which the fellowship can convey an attitude that is less than welcoming. 
This member spoke directly to member attitudes and actions, many of which are supported by common practices and both supported and contradicted in our literature. This member moved through the process of coming to terms with recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous as a non-believer. She felt increasingly that she would be ostracized should the truth be known. She's grateful to have some years of recovery and much practice of fake it till you make it, which is great if it doesn't kill you in the meantime. She thought being honest about her atheism seemed to risk her recovery in AA. In 2006, she came out about her belief and the years of lying about her beliefs. It was in her hometown's only closed AA meeting in the presence of many with similar durations of recovery. She was 15 years and change. Crosstalk directed specifically at her share, and it was immediate. I thought you were smarter than that. And how can you not believe, given your recovery? And you'll get there. Seriously? This thinking comes right out of we agnostics in tradition three of the twelve and twelve, not to mention a thousand other scraps suggesting that we'll all get God or die drunk. That same year that she came out as a non-believer, one of the local fellowship's beloved old-timers was asked to start off the closing prayer. They circled up joined hands to initiate the prayer, the old-timer didn't say who makes us stars and keeps us out of bars or who keeps us sober. He led the group in the prayer by saying, who keeps Amy sober? This member believes that it's less true today than in the past, but there has been much in the way of institutional discrimination by word and thought and deed against non-believers in AA. Right, we're spiritual, not religious. Though we religiously <laughs> conform to habits and conventions that are deliberately and potentially alienating for those who believe differently. Unfortunately, the members I interviewed were all asked the same question, Ashley goes on, to give me examples of when they felt discriminated against and when they felt they were being supported in their beliefs. It saddens my heart deeply to tell you that their experience with being discriminated against was significantly higher than being supported. Now here's a kind of happy ending to Ashley's uh, report. Two stories here. I love how this particular group first embraced their village atheist. Here's how it goes. One member said she felt supported when she was asked to be the Sunday spiritual speaker at her home group. They closed with zippity doo instead of the Lord's Prayer. Another member said she finally felt that she was being supported when she found an atheist agnostic meeting. I'd like to share one more quote from The Language of the Heart, page 853, Ashley goes on. This is where Bill shares his experience in AA's first years, I all but ruined the whole undertaking with this sort of unconscious arrogance. God, as I understood him, had to be for everybody. Sometimes my aggression was subtle, and sometimes it was crude. But either way, it was damaging, perhaps fatally so, to numbers of non-believers. 
Even now I catch myself chanting the same old barrier-building refrain, do as I do, believe as I do, or else. In closing, Ashley wanted to say that she was grateful to be asked to do this presentation because she met some great friends and learned a lot from the literature. So that's from the Pacific region. In Columbus, an agnostic group uh, fended off hostility from a local inner group. The fearful and intolerant are nothing if they're not predictable. We sometimes hear that groups can't be groups if they don't believe in God because atheists are mocking the rest of AA who feels that God speaks to them through tradition too, through the group conscience process. That's binary in its thinking, isn't it? Either we submit to God-fearing uniformity or the other groups in the name of God have a duty to expel these heathens from AA's fold. This motivated me. So here we will look at the erroneous arguments we hear about why atheist groups aren't AA according to our traditions. This is a by-the-numbers AA traditions look at the typical or the most popular arguments among the anti-agnostic tirades. I won't do all 12. I'll just do the first six. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Can't we band together without a scapegoat? Can't we build ourselves up without putting someone else down? Yes, common welfare is essential. Individual welfare not far behind, though. Unity doesn't mean stamping out unusual or unpopular groups. That would be uniformity. And if our founders meant uniformity, they would use the word uniformity. <laughs> Personal recovery depends on uniformity, but that's not what they say. They say unity. Now, unity means respect for each other, the popular and the unpopular, the Pharisee and the recalcitrant, and all of the opinions and worldviews in between. Groups are an extension of the individual in AA. The 12 and 12 talks about AA's promotion of individuality versus conformity. In later traditions, we'll see if AA's encouragement towards individual autonomy is in any way curtailed for the groups we form. In other words, do groups have explicit or implied limitations that the individual does not? On the first page of his essay on unity, Tradition 1, here's what AA's literature says. Does this mean, some will anxiously say, that in AA the individual doesn't count for much? Is he to be dominated by his group and swallowed up by it? We may certainly answer this question with a loud no. We believe there isn't a fellowship on earth which lavishes more devoted care upon its individual members. Surely there is none which more jealously guards the individual's right to think, talk, and act as they wish. No AA can compel another to do anything. Nobody can be punished or expelled. Our 12 steps to recovery are suggestions. The 12 traditions which guarantees AA unity contain not a single don't. They repeatedly say we ought, but never you must. For group unity, Bill W. used the metaphor about our precarious sobriety 
they had suddenly found themselves safe from death but still afloat upon a perilous sea. None of us have a guarantee of uninterrupted sobriety. Having or not having a belief in an unseen sobriety-granting deity doesn't change the fact that AAs depend on each other, that when we need it, the other's meeting will be open to us, an ear will be ready to be bent, and if needed, someone else is willing to talk if we need to listen. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. You don't believe in God, then you don't have tradition too, so you're not an AA group. Ha, 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 gotcha. Well, first, if you believe in God, then you believe that this all-powerful he can influence even the atheist AA groups with his godly mind control, just as well as he can influence those who fear him. He did defy nature, after all, by parting the seas one day and drowning the earth in the flood another day, right? Surely manipulating the neurotransmitters of the unfaithful should be a piece of cake for this guy in the sky. Second, you who agree that tradition too is the word of God will note that tradition too says no one governs. So if you have it right and we have it wrong, we have the right to be wrong without being treated with any less or any more respect, with any less or any more autonomy than any other group. Personally, there is but one authority, our group conscience, reads just as soundly, and that fits into anybody's worldview. Now three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. So if you're a group of atheists, don't you have two requirements for membership? Not drinking? plus the atheist agenda, also known as destroying AA from within as prophesied by Dr. Bob the Proctologist. Understand that anyone trying this one requirement argument on for style uh, also doesn't think that there ought to be women's groups, like the one first started in Cleveland in 41, gay, lesbian, bi, queer, transgender groups young people's groups, or the meetings for the airline industry or law enforcement or the legal community that we discussed earlier. Again, see tradition one, unity, not uniformity. Second, I've never heard of a free thinkers group that wouldn't let a member join the conversation without having to obey Lucifer or denouncing the Holy Trinity. So, Nice try. There is no argument in Tradition 3 to support ousting agnostic groups. Let's try 4, shall we? Each group is autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or A as a whole. Aha! Your humanist group is affecting A as a whole. If someone uses this argument, ask them to explain exactly how do atheist groups affect AA. And what you get is a slippery slope argument. It might include, well, if we let you this, then what happens when the next group that? Where will that end? It might describe a confused newcomer, or public at large that 
can't make out one clear and concise AA message. Slippery slope arguments are fear-mongering. They paint a dark imagining. They invoke hostility and rigidity, like imprisoning a child for life for playing with guns just in case she grows up and shoots somebody. Slippery slope arguments are meant to avert a possible future chain of events. In the 1970s, when the conference discussed allowing groups to be listed as gay or lesbian, the argument was brought to the floor, if we let these sex deviants into the directory now, what will we be listing next year? AA rapist groups? The conference accommodated the gay and lesbian groups, now known as LGBTQ affirmative, without falling prey to this slippery slope argument. First of all, accepting gay AA wouldn't set a precedent. And secondly, the dark imagining of new sexual deviant groups never materialized. It turned out that the fear was just one delegate's homophobia disguised as stewardship, and everyone saw through it. Every group that starts anew will affect other groups in the area, in as far as a new Monday group will draw from members now going to other Monday groups. Some groups will be unpopular with other groups. I remember one stag AA group in Calgary, Alberta, that raffled a prostitute at every meeting. You can imagine the letters of righteous indignation that descended on GSO over that one. Do something. They're ruining the reputation of AA. Any GSO that follows the traditions might make suggestions, but would never make demands or revoke group status for non-compliance. Traditions are guidelines, not rules. If you're looking for absolutes, check our warranties in Concept 12. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your objective and your bias, all you'll see in the warranty is a service structure that protects the rights of individuals and our groups. Members and groups' rights are inalienable. They are neither granted nor revoked by AA servants. Again, tradition two, serve not govern. Damn, let's try tradition five. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. We have one message. The 12 steps as outlined in the big book. You can't change the steps and call yourself an AA group. So there. Well, there's only one set of 12 steps that the General Service Board is the custodian of. They can't be changed by the board or the conference or by a simple majority. That's true. It would take 75% of the members, as we've discussed, to change the steps or traditions. So... Right you are, there is only one set of AA steps, but they are suggested, not sacred. Any member and any group has the right to reject or work them, interpret them, in whole or in part, in any order they see fit. Go back to Tradition 5 and look at what word is in italics. It's. Each group has one primary purpose, carry its message, not the message. As determined in Tradition 2, 
the collective conscience of the members of that group really define that group's purpose. If our group founders touched by the hand of God or otherwise meant the message, a uniformed authoritative message, they would have used the word the, but they chose its to be in keeping with the four traditions that preceded Tradition 5. My group's message might include the steps, and it might not. There were AA meetings sobering up drunks before there was a big book, before there were 12 steps. My group may read and follow the traditions, and it might not. We might use 6 steps or 12 steps. We might use no steps. We might pray, and we might not. We might read the Bible, and we might not. That's none of your business. Conduct your group by its agreed message, and I'll do the same. Sorry, Mr. Intolerant. That's strike five. Let's try tradition six. A groups ought never endorse, finance, or lend the A name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. You atheists are affiliated with atheism, aren't you? Uh, no. Just like you're not affiliated with the church you rent space from or the brand of coffee you put in your coffee urn, AA members who are atheists aren't all members of another secret society. Some of us might join humanist groups and do humanist things, or political groups that fight for separation of church and state, or fight against oppression based on religious mythology. But that's on our own time. That's not a group thing. Well, that's about it, Mr. Tradition Man. Don't try the public controversy thing because it's way more controversial to discriminate against a minority based on creed than it is to define how I live a secular AA life. You'll see something about principles before personalities as you scroll through the rest of the traditions. And being as we've already discussed the principles, don't go there. Congrats, Columbus, for keeping your heads and your listing. I hope I can come visit you someday soon. In the time remaining, let's look at recent polls in Canada and the U.S. and around the world, for that matter, by the Pew Research Group and Angus Reid. What do these latest research polls say about 12-step recovery, or what implication might they have? At the turn of the century, some pretty flattering kudos came AA's way. Time magazine included Bill Wilson as one of the most important hundred men of the 20th century. The Library of Congress named the book Alcoholics Anonymous as one of 88 books that shaped American life. What will be said about us at the turn of the next century? Will we still exist? And if we're gone, what will be the tragic flaw? And if we're thriving, how will we have adapted? Just recently, the Pew Research Group looked at some data and made some predictions about world views and how the global religious landscape will change between now and 2050. AA's most read literature still uses a quasi-Christian worldview of a personal deity that is male and is called God. Here's what the latest Pew Research data has to say about the North Americans outside AA's doors. 
the religiously unaffiliated population is expected to nearly double in size, growing from 59 million in 2010 to 111 million in 2050. The number of Muslims is expected to nearly triple from about 3 million in 2010 to more than 10 million in 2050, making Muslims the third largest religious group in the region by mid-century. North America's Hindu and Buddhist population are expected to reach around 6 million each by 2050, although the rate of increase is projected to be much greater for Hindus, 160% growth, than Buddhists, 58% growth. Increases of more than 100% also are forecasted for the number of people who practice folk religions or identify with other religions, such as members of the Baha'i faith, Jainism, and Sikhs. So those who subscribe to God could and would if he were sought aren't going out of style in the next few decades. It's just that Christians and Jews are losing their dominance. Jewish population will decrease slightly by 2050. Switching worldviews and religious affiliations will undermine the Christian stronghold in North America. Get this, 106 million will switch out. Now 40 million will convert into Christianity, you know, sort of embracing the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost narrative. But the net loss to Christians between now and 2050 will be 66 million less of us in North America. The unaffiliated, we pick up 61 million of those lost by Christians, and the other 5 million, they're going to try another belief system. So, demographics are changing. I mentioned at the beginning of the show the Angus Reid poll, which looked at Canadian demographics, and it puts Canadians in different categories, those who are inclined to reject religious ideas, those who are inclined to embrace religious ideas. And it asks the question, is the growth in atheism a good thing for Canada or not? Those who are inclined to reject religion, 68% said yes, but those who are inclined to embrace religious ideas, 90% of them said no. So if Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where the majority of people embrace the idea of a loving God who may express himself in our group conscience, is AA going to be ready to make room for more atheists and make them feel comfortable here, or will we resist that? Maybe that's something we can talk about more next week. Have a look at these statistics that the Pew Research study put out. Have a look at the Angus Reid poll, and uh, we'll look at these things in more detail next week. How is AA going to adapt to a changing demographic? Thanks for being a big part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Someone emailed me and said it's a podcast so nice, they always listen to it twice. We'll see you soon, but in the meantime, if you've got something to say, news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. We're listening. She was wrong 
She drew me 